2: and it makes some people angry, but I don't think anyone's ever done anything like
1: it. I speak with people like Connor Roberts, Phoenix's Thomas Mars, Chris Gethard, Helen Hong, Adrian Young, and more, so their sparks of inspiration can start a fire in you. I'm
2: grateful for those who continue
1: to put our history and who we are as a people in the forefront and make you see it. Find The Spark Parade wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Kyle Meredith, and I host an interview series called Kyle Meredith with where I talk to legendary musicians, up-and-coming artists, and whatever that is in between. I dive deep into the making of new albums, stories behind songs, but also things like how is Moby connected with the CIA and did the Decembrists really thank Robert Mueller in their liner notes and seeing which band I can get to reunite. Will it be Zeppelin, Genesis, Roxy Music, or Pavement? You've got to listen to find out. It's Kyle Meredith With from WFPK Independent Louisville and the Consequence Podcast Network. consequence podcast network welcome back to filmography a consequence podcast network production i'm dominic suzanne Mayer. i'm the film editor at consequence of sound and the host of this particular program we are now in our third week of filmography tim burton and in that spirit i'd like to introduce my hosts for this week
2: hi i'm natalie marsh i'm a local storyteller uh uh, my day job includes being a digital production coordinator to make ends meet, because uh, we all have to worry about that now. Um, and also uh, a loner and a rebel.
0: Hi, I'm Matt Mellis. I'm the editorial director of Consequence Sound. I'm also a writer and an on and off again literature professor, none of which helps me make ends meet. So yeah,
1: go Natalie. <laughs> <laughs> you picked a bunch of really good jobs to worry about money all the time,
0: Matt. Yeah, and always looking to add one or two more that are not gainfully employed. Says
1: I, a film journalist and podcast host.
0: God bless. One after my own heart.
1: As always, please feel free to both follow us and to leave us a review on Spotify, on Apple Podcasts, on Podchaser, or wherever else you procure your fine podcasts. We'd also like to thank Sadie and the Stark for their song Apocalypse, which is the theme of our full season here. You can check out more of their recordings at soundcloud.com slash Sadie and the Stark. Again, I mentioned at the top that we are now in week three. We're getting over the hump with filmography Tim Burton here, and we've already talked about his gothic look, and we've talked about the way in which he deals with reality and more mature subject matter. This week, we're going to deal with something that people tend to associate with Tim Burton at the snap of a finger, Burton's version of whimsy. And we're going to be looking at that through 1985's Pee-wee's Big Adventure, 2005's Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, 2010's Alice in Wonderland, and the recent release and the most recent in this series, 2019's Dumbo. But to kick off our conversation this week, I want to open the floor to the two of you to kind of weigh in. How do you see in, especially these four movies, but broadly throughout Burton's body of work, how do you understand his representation of Whimsy?
2: I would notice that if we start with his directorial debut with Pee-wee's Big Adventure, it starts out with kind of just a something that's like charming, whimsical, fun, dreamlike. And dreamlike goes throughout All of his kind of whimsical um, films, but as we go through it, it becomes darker and darker and darker. Um, So I thought that I always found that very interesting.
0: Both
1: thematically and very literally, which we're definitely going to touch upon throughout this episode.
0: And while the two of you are talking about whimsical burden, dare I talk about timsical burden? Yeah. Yeah.
1: boo, boo. Earns <laughs> has that been
0: has that been booed before? Has that been tried? <laughs> I don't
1: know if it's been tried, but I am booing it here. I will be the pioneer of a boo for that.
0: In fairness to myself, it just uh, came across that in the last five seconds. Um, Tim Burton, the whimsical Tim Burton. Um, I think at this point, I see Tim in my Tim Burton fandom. I see Tim Burton sort of, and I think a lot of people are probably like this. They see him more as. A visual sort of world builder as opposed to like um, just uh, an exceptional or accomplished storyteller. And so I always think of these um, very imaginative worlds, um, but they're not always, you know, far off Neverlands or fairy tale lands. I mean, they can be worlds um, sort of offbeat versions of ours, which I think we see in sort of uh, Pee Wee. Um, they can be worlds adjacent to ours. Um, which I guess is kind of like Alice in Wonderland, even though it is definitely a, a fairy tale world. But and I know you've you've mentioned this um, before, Dominic. Um, these are very fanciful worlds, oftentimes, and Natalie mentioned it too. But there's darkness to them, and there's danger, and bad things can happen. And I guess because I mean, when you look at these, I would say that three of these four would definitely be considered probably children's. Um, movies. I mean, that is pretty much what you know a children's film is. There's uh, there's a lot of genres we could set, but um, you know, a children's film. There's always that sense of danger. And okay, how's the child protagonist? How do I overcome it? How do I avoid it? How do I get around it, um, or defeat it? Right. So um, they're definitely fantastical worlds. I think we all know a Tim Burton world when we see it, but you know, in addition to sort of that whimsy and that fanciful style. There's definitely always trouble. There's always danger lurking around the corner, I think.
2: I agree. And also, um, it when you talk about his imaginative worlds, I always think about how um, his, well, especially later on after Pee Wee, um, it became, becomes more about the world than it becomes mm. about the story.
1: Yeah, I think that's a fantastic point because, you know, we're we're really gonna kind of hit the nail on the head in the coming minutes of the episode discussing where exactly we see that shift take place. Because to an end, that's kind of relative. It's sort of up to viewer perspective as much as anything. But we have at least two really interesting examples this week specifically of movies where you can see a change from what he's traditionally done to what he would eventually go on to do. Because a point I want to highlight again, that we also brought up a little bit in last week's episode on Adult Burton as well, you know, Burton has always worked within the studio system. A substantial number of his movies are either, you know, adaptations or remakes of a classic tale of some kind or another. He very much, he, he works from source material, which sort of introduces this interesting question of, When do to your point, Nally? When do we see kind of that soul underneath all the world building start to evaporate or to be outright non present in some cases?
0: Well, I mean, it's interesting because I mean, if you take a look at um, his debut, uh, Pee Wee's Big Adventure, uh, if you know a little bit of the history behind writing that show, um, uh, you know, Pee Wee uh, Herman, Paul Rubens had a stage show. Uh, Warner Brothers said, hey, can you turn this into a film? And he and a couple of guys got together. And they were basically writing out of those, like, how to write a script books. That's why it's exactly 90 minutes. That's why exactly at 30 pages this happens. So um, there doesn't always have to be um, a great um, story there. There doesn't always have to be the most compelling narrative. I think part of the problem sometimes with Burden is we create a fantasy world that'll work we have enough of a story there that'll work but we just we don't have maybe the characters there we can't get attached to the characters on an emotional level i think sometimes too
2: i agree um, especially with Wee. you can you have such a simple storyline a, a young man an eccentric <laughs> and uh, a, a ni- yeah uh, just a tiny bit eccentric uh young man getting his bicycle stolen and somehow that story which i would mainly credit to paul reubens not really tim burton um to make that story wonderful and interesting and 90 minutes is the perfect length for a movie <laughs>
1: Yeah, it's very funny when you see now these debates coming up about, like, is the whole third season of Twin Peaks a movie, and we're having all these discussions about Avengers being over the three-hour mark with Endgame coming up. The 90-minute movie is so ideal. The 90-minute movie feels like I have been there for exactly long enough to have had a good time the whole time and never have wondered
0: once if the movie or I were overstaying our welcome. Or, as it gets more important, as we all hit our mid-30s eventually, you two are a little younger than me, there's that bathroom break that kicks in after <laughs> anything over 90 minutes. And, uh, sorry, it's, uh, after 90 minutes you're starting to look for weak points, you know?
2: And the rest <laughs> of the movies we're talking about, they're they're a lot longer. I mean, Dumbo's a bit shorter than um, mm. Alice and Charlie, uh, but the stories become far more convoluted as time um, goes by.
1: Well, and I think we're going to be able to trace that shift we talked about in sort of Burton's sensibility about how he approaches the fanciful and the whimsical. But on that basis, you know, I think we have to set a template for how we see that. And it's hard to think of a better place to start than with Pee-wee's Big Adventure.
0: It's not for sale, Francis. My father says everything's negotiable. He-wee. I wouldn't sell my bike for all the money in the world, not for a hundred billion million trillion dollars. Then you're crazy. I know you are, but what am I? You're a nerd. I know you are, but what am I? You're an idiot. I know you are, but what am I? I know no, you are, but what am I? I know you are, but what am I? I know you are, but what am I? I know you are, but what am
1: I? In the case of that film, you have, and Matt, as you already kind of mentioned, you have a film that Burton ended up on after, after doing his time as a Disney animator, after being famously fired because Frankenweenie was considered a waste of time and resources by Disney. He was hired by Warner Brothers to bring this strange alternative comedy act to life. That's one of my favorite things about the whole Pee Wee character, is this was something that Paul Rubens was doing at, like, left-of-center comedy clubs back in the day, Mm. when you had all these edgy, mostly male comedians trying to be the next Bill Hicks, and then you had Paul Rubens in a bow tie doing funny voices and shtick. And I kind of love that. Because it establishes Pee-wee right away as, like, having this edgier credibility while also being the most unassuming character to ever earn it.
0: I mean, he definitely brings that sort of growlings, um quality to things you'll mm-hmm. see. Um, uh, there's so many people um, in this movie that make cameos that uh, had worked with Paul Rubens on previous Pee-wee projects or on other Growlings projects, some. Um, and it's, it's again, uh, that Phil Hartman sense of humor, right. that Elvira, Mistress of the Dark, Cassandra Peterson sense of humor. Um, it all works in here. And th- those characters and John Paragon, who um, is in here, and he also did um, John Be the Genie for people who grew up on, you know, the Playhouse, uh, Pee-wee's Playhouse. Um, they're also in there. So it was this sort of interesting circle of people doing these similar sort of characters. And actually, what's interesting is characters that, At least in the case of Cassandra Peterson and uh, Paul Rubens, they became these characters. Paul Rubens, for about a decade, if you saw him anywhere where there might be a camera on, he was Pee Wee Herman. Of course, there were a couple of Pee Wee Hermans. There was the Playhouse Pee Wee Herman, and there was, I think, the darker version here. But, um, you know, Cassandra Peterson, she's still Elvira to this day. So it is an interesting kind of school of comedy that all came together, and we get to see it on the big screen, you know, which is rare.
1: With Pee-Wee's Big Adventure, one of the things that just grabs me, and going back to the talk of the runtime especially, it moves. There is just this relentless sense of momentum to this movie. And some of that is that, um, we'll talk about this more in the second half of the show with Danny Elfman's score, but there, in the same way as the score, there is this feeling of bounce, of play that just permeates through the whole film.
2: I agree. When I was rewatching it, I forgot how quickly he goes from bops from like suddenly he's at the T-Rex already. And then he bops straight to the, um, the, the biker bar and it's just, everything happens so quickly and you just forget that it's like, that's one of the magical things about it is that it's just one, uh, surreal situation after the other. And in that perfect, perfect runtime.
0: And I think it's also just, I mean, I think we just have to credit Paul Rubens with not only creating a remarkable character, but just living that character out. This is one, I mean, I will argue this is one of the great film performances of that decade. And I think that leads to that Bob. You believe this is Pee Wee Herman going out for the day. You believe he's going to go stock up on, um, you, I mean, you believe he's going to Waters Long the way he does, which I love. You believe he's going to go through this whole... um spy sort of scenario to bring out his bike he's going to go to the magic store to stock up on things so um it's really believable and it really moves along because you believe you're just tagging along with this very real character and of course there's no one who's really like this person
1: well and what i really love about it too is that burton completely immerses in Pee-wee's point of view, start to finish, which is something that even a lot of really great comedies don't always do from a like cinematic standpoint. Mm-hmm. The movie, it, the, yes, the pacing feels like the pacing that Pee-wee brings to his own everyday life. It It is giddy. It is constant. I was thinking a lot, actually, of Pee-wee's Big Holiday, the Netflix movie that Rubens came back around to do a couple years back. And that one kind of left an odd taste in my mouth. It's not that I disliked it per se, it's that it felt like a modern take on Pee Wee. And I'm not that interested in a modern take on Pee Wee, because a modern take is, oh, Pee Wee seems so strange in this world. And one of the things I think is really magical about Big Adventure in particular is how peewee is the hero of a world that doesn't understand him there is no interest in like dragging peewee into reality there's no hokey moment of you need to grow up there's none of that
2: right his neighbors like him they don't mm-hmm. mind that he waters this uh plants <laughs> and it just sprays their entire house down they're just saying okay bye peewee
0: mr crabtree's cool with it <laughs> yeah
2: really cool with it
1: yeah, and it's kind yeah. of and it's kind of sweet and benevolent in the way some of Burton's early work was. You see that same sensibility, especially with Edward Scissorhands as well. The the kind of whimsy the film brings is a lot more playful in its sensibility. It's mm-hmm. a lot more joyous, and to return to a phrase I used a second ago, kind of childlike in its sensibility.
2: He loves a great expressive lead, and no performer is more expressive in his face than Paul <laughs> Rubens. I mean, Johnny Depp tries. But there's no way he can beat someone as charming as Paul Rumids.
0: And I think one of the things, and we're kind of circling back to stuff we've talked about already. When we talk about world building, you know, Tim Burden, I think you know he sometimes doesn't get credit for it because everything's a Tim he takes everything and does turns it into a Tim Burton world right? right he creates this perfect world and this perfect stage for Paul Rubens where you know again like everyone in here embraces this character or enables him right it should be okay you need to grow up you can't be like this you know in our world right but everyone embraces him and it really does feel like um um Burton's like he's along for the ride like he's part of this ensemble creating this rather than he's like, okay, now we're going to turn Pee-wee into a Tim Burton film. Oh, and I mean, I just, whenever I think about, um, you know, this, I don't think of Tim Burton as the auteur yet. He's getting there really, really quickly. Here I think of him almost like as, and I know it was a big studio movie, but I think he just joined like the Paul Rubens, growlings game and said, let's go make a fun film. And I'm going to bring to this some Tim Burn things, yes, but I'm going to create the perfect stage for Paul Rubens to just, again, put on this performance that no one will ever forget. It's still fresh today. Well, and he's the absolute
1: centerpiece of this movie in a way that's really interesting. I mean, even like, even a lot of star vehicles don't rely on their performer to carry so much of it. Because, Natalie, to your earlier point, this is a, this is a screenplay you could logline in about a (laughs) dozen sentences at most, you know? Mm. Like, there's something very interesting in trusting somebody with as weird and specific a kind of magnetism as Rubens has.
0: And you almost, I mean, again, to go back to that, you have to, I think, have been there during the 80s. I was, you know, for pretty much Pee Wee Mania. And it's, it's one of those things you only see maybe once or twice a decade. Decade, And I mean, maybe Elvira's not quite there, but she's something kind of close to that. And I mean, again, Burden trusted in the fact that people love this character. And, um, you know, he, he was it was just so, I mean, catering to this character in every way possible.
2: Did you ever try and do the tequila dance?
0: Did I ever try and do the tequila dance? Yes, but not in those shoes. I couldn't find those shoes. Those shoes are
2: fantastic, (laughs) and that's a great gag too. When the guy takes them off, and he becomes so so significantly uh, dwarfish compared to uh, compared to Paul.
1: Well, and the thing I love too is that you—it's a movie built around a lot of the things that would go on to be pet interests for Burton as both a stylist and a filmmaker, this mid century kind of architecture. And for that matter, mid century kitchen particular mm-hmm. and you know, the zane, you know, the zaniness of just the offbeat as a recurrent motif.
0: Yeah. And I, th- I think um people would say, again, when I talked about world building, you know, we're going to be talking about Alice in Wonderland and, and Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. He's just fantastical places. But you just think of how much fun Tim Burton must have had creating this world. Think of just, uh, because he has to ask the question, Pee Wee Herman's getting breakfast, right? Not, you know, Dom or Natalie or Matter having breakfast. What would it look like if Pee Wee Herman had breakfast? And of course, you know, you would have um, a total Rube Goldberg machine would have to be there. You would have to have um, a fish tank in the, a fish tank in the window you would have to have Pee-wee herman you know turning his nose up with tape and doing you know i mean this is what this would look like so you can imagine whether it just be um decorating the set or constructing the shots uh i mean v- uh visually this is stunning in its own right in a i different agree way. the
2: um sorry to, um, the breakfast scene really does uh set the tone for the entire for movie sure.
1: It does because you get that bounce, you get the one of the first iterations after the overture of the main Elfman theme, which is you know when you think of Danny Elfman, that's one of the pieces of music you think of first couldn't
0: we all eat breakfast to that
1: honestly i I remember being a little kid and making breakfast to the tune of that song. It made it feel very exciting, which is kind of what I love too in theory and again. It is so, so easy to imagine a version of this movie that is this weirdo being sent through the unforgiving real world. I mean, fish-out-of-water comedies like that were huge in the 80s and 90s, the 80s especially. And I think part of what's so great about it is how, like, when Pee-Wee shows up in a place, it becomes a part of his world. He is not entering the rest of the world. He is dragging it into his atmosphere.
0: Very true. I hadn't thought about that, but everyone he encounters becomes a friend, becomes an ally. It's a great scene at the end of the movie where everyone along his journey, okay, that wasn't just the person who served me a tuna platter, you know, and a milkshake. That wasn't just the person I, uh, I sat with next to somewhere saying Jimmy crack corn with. I mean, these are people that have become, uh, sort of lifelong friends. So he does absorb people into his world. And, uh, that's that's something, I agree, it's really lovely of just how no one tries to change Pee-wee. I mean, and even a guy like this, he's got a girl chasing him, you know what I mean? I, I love the fact that uh, he's just so embraced in his little world, for sure.
1: Well, and I think, too, especially placing this in context of where he'd go, because in a lot of ways, especially in terms of just the riotous colors and especially I think of the trip through the clown hospital in particular (laughs) as being sort of a Rosetta Stone for where his style would go Mm -hmm. immediately following this with Beetlejuice in particular right but especially in what he'd bring to Batman as well in terms of you know like taking something existent and putting his own distinct brand of weirdness into it. But I also think, you know, this is a very Tim Burton movie in a lot of ways, I think we'd agree. But at no point does it overwhelm the story.
2: Not at all. And again, his first movie.
1: Which which is just incredible. It Because as a debut feature goes, it's not every day that you see someone who is just so assured of what their look and feel is as an artist straight out of the gate like this.
2: And to trust another artist so well.
0: Mm, and and just, I mean, such a crazy property to, to, to join on to. I mean, this is the 80s. I mean, this is Acres Stallone, Jean-Claude Van Damme at the box office. And then you have the 98-pound weakling. And again, Burden buys right into it, and he puts his touches. I mean, I think you can go through here, and we can all pick out, like, you know, probably a half dozen scenes that are clearly Burton's influence, you know? Um, But again, it never overwhelms the story. I mean, he's there in service to the story, but in a way that definitely um, is a precursor to things we're going to see going forward. Yeah,
1: and and it's worth remembering, too, this came out in... Early August 1985. This was a modest hit for the time. Pulling down $40 for a a fairly offbeat movie like this was fairly interesting, especially at a time when everything was being franchised. And, you know, they would try that with this, and Burton would not return, um, because for all the things he has done, he's a notoriously sequel-averse filmmaker. Not remake-averse, which is crucial, (laughs) sequel-averse. But... It is interesting to think of just a time when something as sort of unabashedly sweet and on its face simple as Pee-wee could be big. Let, and because, again, I think of him yelling, au revoir, Simone, and that's actually kind of a touching sequence. Mm-hmm. And it's weird to see those little observant beats in a movie this goofy.
0: Yeah, I mean he's, I mean, he's helping... In that case, that character, he's helping her, like, reach her dream. He's that little push, you know. She she has his whole life around her, people she encounters every day. None of them will uh, give her that push to run off to Paris where she's always wanted to live. Of course, her boyfriend Andy won't because he flung French in high school and uh, he thinks everything is set up there to make guys like him look stupid. But, uh, no, I mean, everyone he comes into contact with, he touches in some way. And it's, it's an incredibly sweet movie. It's an incredibly... Um, it's a little bit inspirational. It's um, in the sense that, yes, Pee Wee helps other people become them be- their best selves. But again, I think there's also this idea we'll see throughout Burden's career of championing the outsider, championing that person that, that's different and showing that they do have a value. And I mean, we'll see that time and time again in a lot of Tim Burton movies.
2: There's also the idea that um, there's a character that can that is an outsider that has this kindness to them that makes friends with the unlikeliest of people. And Pee Wee definitely has that, where he befriends everyone he meets, even people who threaten his death. Like, they're going to hang him, then they're going to kill him. One of my favorite <laughs> lines. Uh, and that's a remarkable thing, and that's also inspirational, as you mentioned, Matt.
0: Yeah, but can we also I think it's really also— be uh, important to mention and again this is this is where i grew up in i have to like take a stand here a little bit what i think is also great about this character and it shows the range of it and maybe something that's not in the playhouse version of peewee as much this is a character that can be darker this is a character that can be sexual that can hold a grudge that can be upset and extremely egocentric too so yes he's incredibly sweet but there's that other side of peewee herman you don't get and i think probably my favorite lines since we're talking favorite lines and this also has to be one of those, you know, people talk about like an Anchorman as a quotable movie. Not that this relies on quotes, but this has to be, you know, one of the most quotable movies of the 80s. But my favorite line has to be, and I think it speaks to the darkness of of Rubens and also to Burden a little bit. Um, he, he tells Dottie, Dottie, there's things about me uh, you wouldn't understand. Things about me you couldn't understand. Things about me you shouldn't understand. And I think that that speaks to uh the character in the movie and like any time you kind of get caught up in like why the hell is this going on? We're not we're not going to understand it all. And I think that's kind of true to Tim Burton a little bit too. Well, and it's funny you mention that because some of his 90s work would
1: definitely play up that aspect of Burton himself where, you know, like there's there's kind of like a bodiness to parts of Edward Scissorhands. There's a definite kitschy bodiness to a lot of Mars attacks in particular. Mm. Like Burton tends to get pigeonholed in a little bit as this dream, like this creator of dreams, which deservedly so, but a lot of people forget how playfully ribald he can be at times as Absolutely. well. And it's one of the things about him that especially you start to see diminish off as his career goes on. And on that basis, I think it's actually an interesting opportunity to jump 20 years forward and get into 2005, where this is a very Tim Bur- different Tim Burton we're looking at now. This is a Burton who has had a few hits. He's had his first substantial flop, and now he's starting to get into an era of his career where he's, because at this point, he's been making movies again for 20 years. He's getting to the point where... He is recognizable as a brand more than even as a filmmaker in a lot of ways. By now, the idea of a Tim Burton-esque movie, for instance, mm-hmm. is a, more than a household name. I was going
0: to say, at this point, you know, at least by the time you get to I think we're going to talk about Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. It, it seems like people are coming to Tim Burton over the next few years and say, make your version of Charlie. Not make Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. Make your version. Make the Tim Burton Charlie and exactly. the
2: Chocolate Factory. Exactly. Look, look, look.
0: I think that one's got a bad nut.
2: Daddy, I want a squirrel.
1: Get me one of those squirrels. I want one.
2: Ruka, dear, you have many marvelous pets.
1: All I've got at home is one pony and two dogs and four cats and six bunny rabbits and two parakeets and two canaries and a green parrot and a turtle and a silly old hamster. I want a
0: squirrel!
1: If we're going to start talking about Charlie and the Chocolate Factory... We have to start with Johnny Depp because I think if we're going to explore what makes this movie work or not work, and i I, having read the room before recording, I feel like the d- dialogue is going to lean in the direction of not work. I am not a huge fan of Johnny Depp's performance in this. I can see what he and Burton were going for with it. It's trying to play up the sense of menace recognizable from the Roald Dahl novel But when you put that into a visual context, and especially in a movie that is walking this weird line between being the Tim Burton version of Charlie and the Chocolate Factory and still trying to be a family movie simultaneously, it creates something kind of ungainly.
0: And I mean, that's always been the trick with um, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. Um, On one hand, it's the idea, it's the fantasy of the child in the candy store. On the other hand, it's Raul Dahl sitting there and um he, he wrote in a little it's still there right now, he wrote in a little hutch in his garden. He had a um he had a comfy chair and he was like a, a lazy boy and he kind of put a desk attached to it so he could write. And I just imagine him hunched over that desk, thinking of all these ways to off these children, these wicked little children and their even worse parents. Um so it's this morality tale. And so how do you balance those two things? Um, The fantasy of the candy and all the chocolate and everything with this is going to be a case where one of the few times, you know, uh, and he even calls Charlie in the book, he calls Charlie our hero. And it's because Charlie is a good person willing to do the right thing. And that's a really tricky balance, like you said, to sort of be able to, I mean, on one hand, you're like promoting a child and saying how wonderful he is um, because of who he is. And then at the same, same time, you're offing all these other uh, children because of who they are.
2: Right. That's, and this is going on all while we're, like you were saying, Dom, uh, watching the odd performance of Johnny Depp that goes, it's scattered. It's a definitely scattered performance. And then, sorry to be topical, but then it also gives off vibes of mm-hmm. uh, Michael Jackson and we're watching that play out the paleness right the paleness too well and and just
1: the almost girlish affect as well you know like Mm -hmm. and i feel like that comparison is something burton is very deliberately pursuing so and i'll actually I'll, i'll i'll pose that to the two of you what because obviously a lot of the reactions if you go back and read the criticism around the film at the time was that it was unsettling did that still rate for you in the same way
2: I, I mean, I wouldn't go as far as saying unsettling. I just found it bizarre in in not a great way.
0: It's just, I mean, what Paul Rubens was for Pee Wee's Big Adventure, Johnny Depp is the opposite for this movie. He totally right. sinks it for me. He's just so creepy, and if that's the guy who shows up, you know, to welcome me to his chocolate factory. If I'm any sort of parent, I mean, what feckless fucking parents let their kids go into that chocolate factory with that, you know, creature, you know, and then, you know, we'll we'll have a sleepover afterwards, too, while we're at it. I mean, it was so Neverland right then. And uh, just, I mean, it's still as creepy today and off-putting. I see what they were going for, but it just, it it doesn't, uh, it still doesn't taste good.
2: Yeah, grandpa lost his job, but he's really excited to go back. Check in.
1: (laughs) So I think one—that's one thing I definitely wanted to address because if we're gonna inevitably we're gonna end up comparing and contrasting it with the original at some point. Sure. Having said that, I do feel like everything that does not involve the Wonka story is both the most—it's the most digressive from the original, and it's also those are the parts of the movie that tend to work the least, at least for me. For for instance. Why does Willy Wonka need an origin story? Did you did you watch Willy Wonka as kids, either of you, and find yourself saying, I wanna know what his parents were like?
0: No.
2: No, never. No.
0: Of course not. I mean, he was he was an eccentric chocolatier, he was reckless, he was crazy, and you just I mean, when you're watching a fantasy, you want to believe that there's those characters out there, and you have no desire to know how that came about. And I mean, but this is a trend and you you could probably pinpoint the trend better than me, Dominic about when this became you know the thing to do but we whether it be uh you know um Willy Wonka or whether it be like a Michael Myers so I know you know about uh Natalie I mean it's why why do we need to know everything it just takes away so much of the I think the the whimsy or the Or the Timsy. And uh, (laughs) sorry, I didn't mean to do that.
2: Maybe that has to do with his actual Johnny Depp's actual bizarre, sorry to use that word again, and creepy look to him. How can this man, where the heck did he come from, to look this way, to look so um, alien esque?
1: Yeah, I think there's something really weird, especially referring back to that origin story in this context, where, you know, like Johnny Depp's version of Willy Wonka looks this way because his father abused him as a child and wouldn't let him eat candy and, like, taught him to fear and be repulsed by candy. And then I find myself going at every phase of that why the fuck did this Willy Wonka movie require this?
2: Right, that doesn't explain his eerie um, snow-like glow.
0: That doesn't get you from point A to point B at all in any way. <laughs> no. No, it does not.
1: And, and that's the thing. I think in general, this is a movie we can kind of peg as not knowing what it's trying to be. Because at the beginning there's something almost kind of Edward Scissorhands-esque about like the menace of the smokestacks on which the film opens. Mm. And it, the um, the Bucket House, which I think is one of the really cool pieces of art direction in the Absolutely. movie. It, it has this very Old Burton feel to it. And then you start jumping around to the kids. And now it is this strange, surrealist, shockingly mean-spirited comedy for a while. And then you get into the factory, and it's a mixture of that same meanness of spirit with a kind of menace that... Is increased from the original movie, but doesn't feel like raw doll menace. It feels like it feels almost like kind of Final Destinationy, <laughs> where you're just like sitting there waiting for each of these kids to get theirs, and you feel like the movie is so, kind of sort of encouraging you to have that response, you know?
0: Well, th- well, think about the original, and I agree with you. I mean, visually, story-wise, I love everything that takes place outside of Willy Wonka's Chocolate Factory. And I think it's a much better tribute to the original, um, uh, to the book than um, the original, um, you know, Mel Stewart take was in 1971. But when you get into the factory, I mean, I think part of the reason why you're just, you're sitting there and you're kind of just waiting, like, who's next? I mean, you don't get any of that Gene Wilder charm you don't get some of the jokes that he would just sort of you know strike that reverse it, I mean, you get some Johnny Depp jokes, I think, for the most part, you know um don't land, you don't have any memorable songs that you know break things up, and again, this is the most important thing when you and I think we'll talk about it much more later, but you get into a chocolate room where nothing looks edible it looks i mean I think everyone who who watched that told me. It either looked um, nauseating, or you know, just uh, there's there's no way there was just there was none of that fantasy. They killed the fantasy of it, so all you're left with is basically the story. I mean, you got none of the charm, none of the good songs, none of the um, great performances. We're just we're just waiting for kids to plop off, you know.
2: Speaking of the songs, the oompa loompas are uh. just like such a negative aspect of that film because the songs again aren't memorable. They're not catchy. I wanted to fast forward them. Desperately. And then we get to the point of, I mean, Dom, you and I have discussed this, where there are no, people don't use extras like they used to. And so they have this cheap way of duplicating this single actor. And it's boring,
1: And again, you know, duplicating Deep Roy and especially some of the perspective manipulation stuff that's going on. You've seen him play with that before on film. This would become a major motif for him later, especially when we get to talking about Alice. You know, he becomes very interested in messing around with size and proportion and things Mm -hmm. like that around this point in his career. Even with Big Fish, he plays around with that to an end. But and some of that is the technology finally rising to meet him to an end because this is a movie that definitely looks like it's from 2005, among other
0: things. Can I ask a question? Yeah, I mean, and that's and I'll probably ask this about Alice too. Um, but when I look at this movie, I'm thinking to myself, there's a chocolate river there that excited me so much as a child. Even though when I look back at the original, it kind of looks rusty more than chocolate, maybe. Mm-hmm. But it's still to the point. I mean, this is like the kid, ultimate kid fantasy, and they ruin it with this just terrible just CGI that makes everything look so grotesque to me. But so do you want to see Tim Burton make this movie before he had that technology? Do you want to see him make that Alice World before he had technology? I'm so curious what he could have done. And I've been thinking about that about several of his later movies. I mean, did the, was it the technology that ruined Tim Burton in some case? What if he would have taken on this Charlie um, and that chocolate factory, you know, 10 years earlier? What would that have looked like?
2: I agree. That would have been a very interesting uh, thing to see.
1: You get this sense that he's trying to make something distinctly different, which I'm very pro, because as we're going to talk about in a little bit, like you can only slavishly adhere to something so, mon- so much before the purpose of remaking it is null and void. For sure. I mean, a lot of modern film remakes you kind of see that with, where it's, why are you trying to do this? The difference is that Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, I think there is room to do an alternate take on Wilder, but this mm-hmm. is just such a weird vantage which is, the, the impression this movie gives me is, what if the riverboat sequence from the original was the aesthetic of the entire movie? Because there is that sense of danger we started this conversation by talking about. But it's also not in a way that I find fun to watch after a while. There's something almost like, it again, procedural in the style of a horror movie about it. I think a good example of this Is when, again, to go back to when you're being introduced to all the kids and they're all little monsters and the kind of like weird fifties off material look that Burton loves to invoke kind of anachronistically. And it's not the worst thing that happens in the movie, but it's the one that's stuck in my craw the most. Around the time that Mike TV refers to someone as a retard 30 minutes into the film. Oh,
2: right. I, <laughs> I caught that too. I'm
1: left sitting there going, and this is a question we're going to get to with Alice and with Dumbo as well. Who is Charlie in the Chocolate Factory for? Because Mm -hmm. it's a family movie that is deeply unnerving for any kind of younger kid. Anyone who's nostalgic for Willy Wonka is going to be put off at the very least by Burton's take on the material. Mm -hmm. And then, outside of those two groups, who in 2005 was clamoring for a second take on the material?
2: Someone in a studio system said, let's remake this. And,
1: Uh considering this pulled down over 200 mil... You know, the sad thing is it worked. But also, this is a movie that made a lot of money, but I don't think left the cultural imprint that it was supposed to.
0: Absolutely. um, I write a column for Consequence of Sound, and I'm kind of getting it uh, back on uh, on a regular schedule now. And I wrote about this a couple of years ago. I asked had uh, for the 10th year anniversary, I asked had Charlie Sweden with age. Um, because I do think, you know, as much money as this made, um, this just and Alice after this, which I kind of see similar in some ways, because as Natalie said, it was someone coming and say, "Give us the Tim Burton Alice in Wonderland, give us the Tim Burton, you know, uh, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory." But um, I agree, I don't think anyone goes back and says this is the definitive version. Um, they go back um, to um, something else and um, to a, to an earlier version of Alice and to the obviously the Wilder version when we talk about Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. And um, I think one of the things I can really credit this, I mean, as bad as the debt performance was, I really do think they tried to, I mean, Roald Dahl was one of the, if you, if you knew anything about Roald Dahl, he never liked a movie that was made from one of his books, <laughs> even when he worked on the movie and had a big say in the script. And there is a lot done here. And I don't know if we'll go into it or not, but there's a lot done here that really tries to play. I mean, it it tries to go back to the original version and correct a lot of things that really did stick in uh, Doll's Crawl. So I do give it credit for that. I mean, even when Elfman, I think, butchers all the songs, I have no idea what he's singing in any of them. They're (laughs) just so just abrasive. He is going back and he's using the recitations and the original Oompa Loompa lyrics from the books. You know they get rid of the fizzy living, lifting, uh, stealing scene because it wasn't the book. Because someone good like Charlie wouldn't do that. That's the point. He's a good kid, and that's why he doesn't meet the fate of the others. And there's a bunch of other examples like that. Uh, and then sometimes they just went darker because it's Tim Burton, I think. They, instead of having the the geeses that lay the bad eggs, um, or tell right, they have squirrels that do the nuts. And to have Veruca Salt, you know, fall down a you know a chute because she's a bad egg. Or to have her basically have a hundred squirrels, you know, all over her, trying to crack her to see if she's a good nut or bad nut. I mean, it's just darker. So I will credit this version with trying to be truer to, I think, the true nature of the original.
2: And this is when we start seeing a bunch of fog, uh, that fog and kind of dreary looking um, sets. I mean, you could say Willy Wonka, and it just kind of remind. Sorry, no, Charlie. Um, kind of has that similar uh, gothic eeriness that Sleepy Hollow has, and he just wants to incorporate that into so many of his films. This kind of this gothic, uh, maybe there is um, uh, it's either gothic with some dreamy snow or gothic mm-hmm. with lots of fog and, and and an ominous feeling to it. And he
0: does it with Alice in Wonderland too, which. The poetry in, in Carol's original says, On a pond on a golden day <laughs> so, On a golden I'm sorry, on a golden afternoon. And here we no, you're not gonna get the golden afternoon version.
1: Well and Nellie, and you bring up a really good point here too, because if we go back to our opening discussion and we're kinda of picking this apart apart, this whole idea of You know, when did the whimsy that people fell in love with with Burton's work, when did it change or did it? And I think right around this period with this and with Sweeney Todd and with Corpse Bride, he's embracing that murky, bluish, grayish palette, which would eventually become a super popular modern film palette in general for reasons I will never entirely understand. But this was, you know, around this time, Burton is starting to really lean into his reputation as this gothic filmmaker. And all his movies, again, whether it fits or not, are starting to reflect that. And I actually think if we're going to discuss the ways in which, you know, the Burton palette sort of changed, as did the emotion behind it, that's then a good transition into Alice in Wonderland.
2: Uh. It's you.
1: No, it's not! My twist brought us the wrong Alice! It's the wrong Alice?! It's absolutely Alice. You're absolutely Alice. I'd know you anywhere.
0: I'd know him anywhere! <laughs> <laughs> well, as you can see, we're still having tea. And it's all because I was obliged to kill time waiting for your return. You're terribly late, you know. Naughty.
1: In the case of Alice in Wonderland, this is now 2010, Burton has now, for a few years, made movies that have been very successful, critically and particularly commercially, but there is starting to be this growing sense of who is Burton as a filmmaker. So, I don't even know where to start with this movie. For you listeners, sake of full disclosure, I, the host, really do not like this movie at all. My co-hosts also really do not like this movie at all. So, the next... 15 odd minutes of dialogue are going to be fairly pejorative and now you know fuck that
0: it. <laughs> <laughs> oh boy. fuck this movie
1: we're working blue here at filmography now so let let's start broadly what to the two of you does not work about 2010's alice in wonderland
0: to start with um i'm going to quote the cheshire cat um all this talk of blood and slaying has put me off my teeth
2: that's perfect
0: um these are so one of the things i mean that i think tim Burton, I, I, I think this probably ticks most of the boxes there's things that can sink a tim Burton film one of them is if he doesn't emotionally connect with his audience i think that happens here another one is when a performance is just terrible and it sinks things we saw that in charlie i think we could see that in a couple of cases here and I think the other one is when he builds a world that is not conducive to the characters we're working with and these are characters, Lewis Carroll's characters are characters that have tea and they play croquet and they tell riddles. They don't go out on the battlefield and sl- slay and, and do things like that and it's just uh it's it's
2: uh one of the oddest third acts.
0: <laughs> why did uh, I think I know exactly we've we've been talking about why I think it's I mean, I I always related to um, uh, the Chronicles of Narnia, and I think you could do with other fantasy films. There were the. There were the Lord of the Rings films a few years before and all these really successful films. And I think they just said, you know, we need to have a let's find some characters that we can put into a third act battle of some sort, because that seems to be doing very well right now. We have the prophecy. We have the Johnny Depp the Hatter as Mr. Tumnus. We have fighting the queen at the end. I mean, it just it's it's plug and chug right into that mode. And there's so there's no emotional connection for me in any way. The performances, there's just nothing that's endearing at all. I don't care about any of them. And again, what the hell are these people, what the hell are these beloved characters in literature? There's only two books quoted more than this, the Bible and, oh, what's the other one? Shakespeare. Shakespeare and the Bible are the only things quoted more than this in the English language. And we just absolutely butcher one of either the progenitor of all children's books, one of the great classics of all time
2: the cartoon itself uh the disney film uh i know we're going to talk more about disney and then his take on disney disney films later but uh the cartoon in itself was bizarre kind of scary for me as a child and then you see this version and it's i can't imagine seeing it as a a really like a six-year-old, and no. not being scared by it.
1: It's interesting you mentioned that because after years of working with, again, a lot of remakes and a lot of known properties, this was probably Burton's biggest, taking a crack at a Disney classic. This was also one of the first Disney live-action reboots out of the gate, that we can also qualify live-action in this one a little, because about 95% of this movie looks like it was made in front of green screens, no. but... this was one of the first things to really kick off the modern wave of all these Disney live action movies. There are going to be three released in 2019 alone. We're talking about one of them a little later in this episode. And part of the reason that this whole boom happened the way it did was because this movie made $334 million in theaters. This was a mega hit. And I only bring that up to say this movie being the hit it was could not have been a worse thing for Burton, I would argue, <laughs> because if we're going to have a conversation about Burton falling into self-parody, it is really after that "this movie when that talk specifically ramps up.:
0: And to that point, he didn't he produced the second Alice movie, correct? And it just, I think that speaks to the point you're saying about this being able to, the self-parody of Tim Burton, but also others being able to do it. You see a second film that looks exactly like the first Tim Burton film here. Uh, I think James Bobbin maybe directed it. Um, So again, it's not just that Burton's self-parodying, but like others are parodying Burton now. And uh, again, it's just another movie out there that everyone thinks is Tim Burton that's not. And uh and that's, that's a shame because, I mean, no one wants, if you thought going down the rabbit hole once was bad, no, no one wants to go down that twice.
2: And I mean, this is during an, uh, a time where there was a demand for kind of darker, uh, darker versions of fairy tales mm. and other Disney stories and a lot of live action, like Snow White and the Huntsman. I'm not mm. sure exactly how far apart they were released, but it still, it doesn't work. I think it's interesting that Burton, he will age down some of the 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 lead male characters. Like Charlie is a lot younger than he is in the 71 film. And I'm sure a lot of that, that casting has to do with he co-starred with Johnny Depp in Finding Neverland. Uh, but mm. then again, you go to Alice and he ages her up to 18. And I don't know exactly why, except to have her... Um, just to add an extra layer of storytelling or storytelling where she has a reason to run away due to a a, a marriage she does does not mm-hmm. want to enter into. Um, but there is uh, uh she is supposed to be revisiting, I suppose, Wonderland.
0: Yeah, yeah, the only thing I can see why they actually had to make house a little older is she had to be uh, old enough to wield a sword. <laughs>
1: Uh, because that's that's
0: pretty much it right and wear bare shoulder dresses yeah and wear Uh. bare shoulder dresses
1: what's so frustrating about this movie is that again i'm not going to sit here and be dismissive of the idea of a modern alice reboot frankly in this era there was gonna be a take on this movie whether burton did it or not and he's not even the worst choice as a filmmaker I think, and again, I don't want to jump the gun too much on the technical discussion, but we have to talk about the look of it for at least a minute here. Because one of the strangest things about Alice in Wonderland is how much he manages to vacuum a sense of wonder out of it.
0: Mm -hmm. And, I mean, it's actually in the movie. We find out Alice misremembers. It's actually Underland. There is no Wonderland. We're talking about Underland. So uh, we talk about getting rid of the wonder. It's right there in that detail. But uh, yeah, the scorched earth version of um, Alice, in Underla- uh, uh, Alice in Underland. Yeah, we'll just say that.
2: And as she descends into Underland, that sequence looks terrible.
0: For one, it again
1: has that same muted monochrome palette we talked about in context to Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. But it's weirder here. Because, and for instance, in preparation for today's episode, I actually watched this and Pee-wee's Big Adventure back-to-back, and that is just a case study and juxtaposition sure. because the riotous swaths of color, and even, like, the swaths of color he uses juxtaposed with darkness early in his career, Edward Scissorhands being a great example of that. There's none of that balance here. Everything, whether you're with the Red Queen no matter where you are spatially in the film, it always has that same strange glaze over it.
0: And, I mean, even just looking at past versions of Alice, whether it was like that musical that was on TV, you know, that you watched when you were a kid on your grandparents' tape or whatever, um, or, you know, another film version of it, I mean, what a, or, or, or the, the novel um, itself. And you have to have this in movies. You have to have moments where you can sigh and feel, say, I feel safe or I feel warm, or there's some humor here, or some humanity here, or I care about this person. There is no sense of just um, pause. There's no sense of calm or safety. It's just the whole movie are just around characters that all feel the same. They all come from the same dark place. They all look the same and feel the same. It's just, um, again, it's it's kind of like going back to Charlie. There's there's never just um, a pause from, you know, I'm expecting the axe to fall all the time. And you need more than that from a fairy tale. There has to be lighter moments. And there's no there's no comic relief. There's no emotional relief. There's no visual relief of any sort.
1: But Matthew, you have all the comic relief you could ever want in the form of Johnny Depp's Mad Hatter.
0: I was
2: just going to say that. I'm sorry. Those creepy contacts that he wears. And that he he just made me anxious the whole time.
1: At least the meanness of his Wonka, we can talk about it working or not working, but it's a consistent motif. I do not know who this Mad Hatter performance is. There are two or three scenes where he's audibly just doing Jack Sparrow. There are (laughs) other scenes where, you know, he's got kind of that like dour, glowering menace that he brought to Sweeney Todd. And then there's still other scenes where he's doing this weird, giggly, girlish performance that is separate from the one he gave in Charlie, but no less creepy.
2: And you wonder why Alice is even friends with him and she goes to rescue him. You're like, why?
1: Yes, the movie very much insists on the importance of the Mad Hatter, I would argue to its detriment. Because a lot the movie doesn't articulate why he's so important aside from because Johnny Depp is playing him. Mm-hmm. I remember the theatrical poster for this movie where it was Johnny Depp, Disney's Alice in Wonderland. So over actual Alice or even Burton the filmmaker, Depp was the top billing.
0: Well, I assumed uh, Johnny Depp was playing Alice when I saw <laughs> Alice in Wonderland in the picture of Johnny Depp there. I said he's gonna he could probably pull off the uh, the bare shouldered uh, blue dress. But, uh, no, it's it's this was the time where and we saw it between um, Pirates of the Caribbean and Charlie before it. I mean, you could put Johnny Depp in anything at that point in time, and it was going to do well. And Johnny Depp is supposed to be your emotional connection to this world. He's the one who you're supposed to sort of, um, among all these lunatics, uh, feel with and feel for in a way. And, um, you know, he's the one who says, oh, this is Alice. You know, no one else recognizes her. There's supposed to be an emotional connection here that we can hold on to. He's our ally in some way into this world, but he absolutely isn't. As Natalie said, the first time you see him, you are just aghast, and you want to you want to climb right back up the rabbit hole.
2: It's hard to make someone as talented as Mia Wasikowska seem like a flat performer.
1: And honestly, I think if the character of Alice gets anything in this movie, it's through her through sheer willpower, because as written, Alice is barely a character. She's mm-hmm. this weird kind of passerby observer to the movie happening around her. She's more of a proxy for Burton to carry you through his world than anything else. Mm-hmm. He seems, for one, more interested in both of the queens than he is in her, mm-hmm. and especially the Hatter.
0: Right, and I think there's, I mean, I don't like, again, it's, what's so hard about House of Wonderland is you're taking zero plot from the really from the original, and trying to do something with it. And here they kind of did some, I mean, the, the sort of Austenian idea of marrying for security instead of love and being forced into it. I could kind of see that. I also kind of thought, to be honest, the idea, it kind of intrigued me a little bit. I liked it when it was done in Hook, this idea of you are remembering, you're not dreaming. I thought there were some interesting things to do with that. But as Dom said, um, you know, even they tried to make an emotional connection with a father who, you know, is, is long gone from her life. And he kind of some of the things he used to say pops up, you know, throughout to sort of give her sucker and, um, um, you know, moments of trouble. But, um, you know, it's like what Dob said, as soon as she goes down that rabbit hole, it's just there's really nothing for her to do other than go from place to place. And um, and as as, and I agree with you, I, I love the actress, but she's got nothing on an emotional level to do. And then in addition to that, you're just wondering, well, why the hell is all this going on anyway? <laughs> you know? We don't care about what she ends up doing either. You well,
1: know? and then again, boomeranging back around to that third act where we began, by by about the one hour mark of that movie, I found myself doing one of the worst things you can do during a movie where you start checking the clock and going, how much is left in this? Because for a movie that only runs around an hour and 40 minutes, the pacing feels glacial. Mm-hmm
2: and glaze like the look of the film.
1: Yeah, it, it, the whole movie looks like again, we'll we'll kind of hold this, but it looks dour. It is not a pleasing film to look at, I would argue. Mm-hmm. It actually and this is a movie no one should be reminded of in any context. It made me think of M Night Shyamalan's take on the last airbender where everything is sort of murky looking mm-hmm. and in this soft, almost kind of fuzzy and incoherent blue palette. Mm-hmm. And that's the thing. For a movie that is trying to show me visual wonder after visual wonder, it feels a lot more like it's just flinging concepts at a wall to see what'll stick than actually telling me a story using those.
2: And I felt like Helena Bonham Carter's character was supposed to be this kind of magical, like, look at this kind of animation. Look how fantastic this looks. And you're never feeling that threatened by her. Instead, I was just like, ooh, is that Crispin Glover?
1: (laughs) First of all, Crispin Glover's weird, tall CGI body is easily the funniest and best thing in this whole (laughs) film. He looks ridiculous. And every time he showed up, I was happy.
0: One of the few things I was sure about is that Crispin Glover... Um, kept his Ilosevich staying outfit and has has worn it multiple times since this movie wrapped that warms my heart
1: I I think we would agree Alice itself substantially less of a treasure Um, especially when we get into the visual discussion in the second half we're going to tease that side of it out a little bit more but if we're on the topic of Burton doing Disney we can jump forward to once again the most recent release on this list, the one that is still in theaters as of this episode's recording and release 2019's Dumbo.
2: For the record, this was not
0: my idea. Dumbo works alone. So do I. <laughs>
2: I was wearing the wrong foundation shade for years, and no one told me. Thanks, guys. Then I discovered Il Maquillage, the bold new beauty brand using AI to shade match. Their best-selling woke-up-like-this foundation has 50,000 five-star reviews and is a total game-changer for my glow-up. Plus, it's cruelty-free. You can even try before you buy at home for 14 days, risk-free. Take the quiz and get your shade of flawless at ilmakiage.com slash quiz. That's I-L-M-A-K-I-A-G-E dot com slash quiz. And you hmm. charming. Well, maybe he didn't recognize you with that makeup. So I gotta teach you to fly? I know how to fly. Ever since I was a child. They taught Dumbo to fly, no? So I don't need to expand.
1: In the case of Dumbo, you once again have Burton working in this Disney live action mold, which is kind of, you know, if if it was underlit at the time he did Alice in Wonderland, overlit is now the house style. Anyone who watched the Beauty and the Beast reboot can attest to that for one. Um, but
2: Starring Dan Stevens as Wig.
1: Dan Stevens as wig. That This has nothing to do with Tim Burton. It's just a very important thing that's happened in film in the last couple years. Agreed. Dan Stevens' end of film beast wig when he's just a man again. He has I, he has a beautiful lion's mane.
0: I have never seen any version of Beauty and the Beast ever. Well, get on um, that. Oh, or you are uh, you are honestly deprived
1: that. of the Disney original in all is seriousness. One of the best. It yeah, is one of
0: their best. What what about the remake? The remake is not <laughs> yeah.
1: and and there sits Dumbo, and of all the movies to remake, Dumbo is a really weird choice for a couple reasons: one Jim Crows two the movie the original animated movie is only sixty four minutes long. Dumbo does not fly until less than ten minutes away from the ending of those sixty four minutes. Dumbo is very gentle. It is basically a plotless movie. So to turn any turn it into anything is kind of a weird proposal from the jump.
2: Mm-hmm. I had a harsh reaction to viewing this movie. There is so much CGI uh violence against the the mother of Dumbo and you know, you know cruelty to Dumbo himself that as an animal lover, which a lot of people are, it's really difficult to watch, and it's such a twisted take.
1: It does. So let's revisit right off the bat: the Charlie question, the Alice question. Mm. Who is this Dumbo for?
2: Not children, because I was watching it with uh, in a in a theater with children, and uh, multiple times I heard that's very scary. <laughs>
1: yeah, honestly, because and, and Natalie, you raise an interesting question because now that we're in you know the, the era of everything being CG. It raises the question of, like, what are the limitations of what you can and should do to a character just because you're able without it being illegal? Mm -hmm. Because, yeah, again, this is a really upsetting take on Dumbo. And Dumbo's kind of upsetting to begin with, and it deals with these very Disney themes of abandonment. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, at no point in original Dumbo, for instance, did Michael Keaton doing an absolutely inexplicable accent top to bottom (laughs) show up as, like a weird Machiavellian Walt Disney type to menace Dumbo and threaten the lives of both Dumbo and his mother. And again, it's adding plot to a plotless uh, movie, but how is this the movie you land
0: on? I mean, in fairness to Michael Keaton, he wasn't around back then to show up or he may have. Um, (laughs) no, this was, uh, what I did like about this movie. Um, I saw I saw what they were trying to do again. You're trying to start from scratch with the plot. I did like s- some of the callbacks. Um, I have to agree with that. I liked I liked the Casey Junior callback to the original. I liked the fact that there was no Jim Crow, thank God. Um, I liked that there was still that moment where um, you know Dumbo uh, Dumbo's mom sort of cradles him through. Um, through the, um, the doors of her um, cage, mm-hmm. um, which was, you know, I mean, I, I mean there, and that's what I think it comes back to. I mean, there is some heart in this film, and I haven't really followed Tim Byrne in the last few years, but that's one of the things I lost with part of Charlie. Freddie Highmore didn't carry it a little bit. There would be no heart in that film whatsoever. There was no heart in Alice. Um, there is some heart in this film. Um, and I'm glad it went back to that, and I think part of it, again, is, I mean, Tim Burton um, looks, you know, at Dumbo, and he sees Dumbo, again, as that outsider character, and, again, we find out this character that nobody wants, that some people would just rather drown, right, because he's different because um, of the size of his ears. I mean, Dumbo turns out to be the most valiant, the most noble um, character here, so, again, I think that, that's what I like about it. It's got some heart, and, again, because it's Tim Burton... Taking an outside, or even taking the people in the circus, in the Medici Circus, um, who again most people call circus freaks, right? And Tim Burton shows you the humanity of them and um, um, the you know the good parts of them, and doesn't treat them as though they're they are just freaks. You know, so there are some things going for this that I really did like how they ended up plot wise, where they got. Obviously, you have Dumbo and Mom and uh, Mrs. Jumbo getting separated. That's got to be there, but how they ended up, I mean, if you, if you blink, you miss Timothy Mouse altogether, if anyone saw him. Um, in the cage, Timothy, with the oh, little, yes. with the little uh, cute ringmaster outfit Oh, on. it
2: was so adorable. <laughs> and I agree with everything you say uh, or Thank said, you. Uh, but <laughs> um, but I would say you don't find the heart to this movie until it's way too late.
1: And I feel like, again, it's it's confused for a while because it starts off with Burton working very much in that big fish mode, you know, like encroaching sunlight to like a hyper real extent and the warm small town hokum kind of feel that it has going in the early scenes so when it turns into this weird dystopic retro futurist Mm -hmm. movie about how corporations and also circuses are evil you know i'm on board with both of those points politically (laughs) but it's it's a weird transition for dumbo specifically to make yeah Yeah.
2: right And also, you're supposed to just feel comforted by Colin Farrell and also sympathetic due to his lack of one arm. And uh, then his children are supposed to be, like, you know, hearts uh, or kind of protagonists of the story. But they're complicit in Dumbo being shoveled around for him to be part of this act. And you see him in clown makeup and just kind of exposed to everyone as a circus freak, like you, like Mm -hmm. you were mentioning, Matt. And it just did not sit well with me.
1: Well, and I think, too, like, he chooses, in in making the movie about situating Dumbo and his assumed family as these misfit characters, you end up dragging a very gentle character into a very modern adventure movie framework, you know, like... The whole like band of misfits rallying together around Mm -hmm. a greater evil, which is a very modern way to do Dumbo, but it's also kind of at odds with the spirit of the original. Mm -hmm. But then I come back around to going, this ends up so substantially different from the original that it's almost its own weird thing.
0: I mean, I was, I'll say I was with the film. I mean, overall, I thought it was an okay movie. Again, it was burdened with some heart to it. And that's something I hadn't personally seen in a while, so it scored some points there. Um, I think at the beginning I really liked. I really did see, as Daw mentioned, uh, Big Fish is sort of us um, training grounds for this a little bit. We see sort of the, the southern feel. We also see the um, the, the circus. Um, you know, we get Danny Devito for a second time as a ringmaster. Um, so I, I mean, I thought like just the details of the circus um the cars were beautiful the paintings the circus art i thought so much of that really felt good um i i liked a lot of that and then again i don't understand quite how it got to michael keaton's character how it got to um what was called dreamland which again i think this was supposed to be said in the what 1930s Did, are we sure I'm not I, quite sure. I have to go back to that. But um,
2: by the way, it, yeah, the people are dressed, and how um, Eva Green is also yeah. kind of dressed in a flapper look. I would say it'd be like 30s, yeah, 20s. But it was just
0: strange that it went to this weird place with Dreamland. How was Dreamland even a place at that time? It is actually
1: set. Not to interrupt. It is set in 1919, despite oh, the fact that far it,
2: earlier than I thought. Well,
1: because Farrell was supposed to have lost his arm in World War One. However, sense. this is a movie that, as um, my colleague Caroline Sita pointed out in her review of the film, the movie desperately wants to be set in the 30s, mm-hmm. and a lot of the aesthetics are from that era.
0: But what about what about Dreamland? Didn't Dreamland seem like this was something? It's much very... more out of the future. I mean, to the point that when I'm when I was looking at it, I I think we all made this connection. Not Dreamland, but disneyland well and i think
1: in terms of the art deco style he's pursuing in the second half of the film with the whole sleek again like 1950s vision of the future kind of look he selects for it you know i mean that's a mode that again it's an era that fascinates burton throughout his entire career you see Mm -hmm. it over and over it does have a very cool world's fair kind of look to it you know like the the like Visions of tomorrow type stuff you read about when that fair the world's Progress, fairs used to yeah. do, yeah.
0: It was, it was sort of, it was sort of um, Disney early Disneyland meets like the circus or a world's mm. fair. I agree with you, yeah. But I
1: and and this is actually the thing about the film that if it didn't make me like it a ton more, I definitely found it a lot more interesting than a lot of Burton's latter day work as a result. This is a movie bankrolled by Disney. About the evils of places like Disney, that even specific, that one of the things I do really love from this movie is that recurrent motif of all the children clamoring to grab stuffed Dumbos that are done Mm -hmm. up to look Mm -hmm. exactly like the Dumbo from the original animated movie.
2: And it's adorable.
1: It is adorable. And
0: are we allowed to spoil things? we are yes we're allowed to spoil okay and then in a disney movie they burn the surrogate they disneyland to the ground to
2: the ground and may i ask you a question sure go for it. yeah my i'm gonna go for it now as things were burning to the ground earlier there were a lot of people on them right <laughs> and then i'm just like okay did all of them just die did they
0: pay to get in that's all about that a, hand, <laughs> a handful of
1: people did not get out of that park. When Keaton is standing there looking over his demolished kingdom in mm-hmm. like that weirdly apocalyptic wide shot near the end of the movie, mm-hmm. I was just sitting there going, Yeah, what uh what happened to those thousands and thousands of people uh, in the Coliseum for one example. What's
0: what's also strange is, I mean, if you've ever seen Walt Disney portrayed, you know, Uncle Walt. Um, Disney is very careful in how they portray him. Like, for example, um, did anyone ever see, uh, was it Saving Mr. Banks? Yes. Yes. Okay, so, I missed that one. I'm well, sorry. well, it's a really interesting story about sort of the making of Mary Poppins, how they got the film, the rights to the book. Um, it also, you know, makes a hero out of Walt Disney and, you know, it puffs him up. It says, you know how Mary Poppins got made Walt Disney um, flew, uh, you know, flew across the ocean one flight later to chase down P.L. Travers to get the rights to her book. None of this happened. I mean, it makes Walt out to sort of be the hero. It paints him in this shining um, light. And um, that's that happens all the time when we see Disney depicted. But if we're to see this as Disneyland, and I know nothing else this could be but Disneyland or Disney World, don't we have to look at Michael Keaton and consider him a Walt Disney figure? So again, how are we portraying, you know, Walt Disney You know, we've always portrayed him in this shining light, you know, in this noble light. What now?
2: That just goes back to our point earlier. What is this? What is he doing? And what's this for?
0: This is not like an especially
1: warm or delicate movie, even though it has notes of that in the early going. This is kind of like a cacophonous, menacing action adventure, if anything, which once again, much like Alice, modernizing a gentler, older story, but also... This is a kind of modernization that, you know, even if it doesn't totally fit Dumbo basically at all, at least it is Burton actually putting his own stamp on something again.
0: That's true. I mean, I think you, you can give kudos to a lot that was attempted here. Um I think more so than I don't I think the the attempt, um the execution <laughs> fell short in many cases, but there was definitely an, an attempt to say whether again, I think it was to um, like for example, the the story of the family and the children, um, what they were trying to get across with them, um, I don't think it really worked at all. But there was at least an attempt to put something to emotionally connect to in there. Besides Dumbo and Missus Jumbo, there was the attempt to um, say something about again, um, you know, this this whole um, notion of you know Disney World and the capitalism, all those sorts of things and greed. There was also the it comes around in the end. Natalie, which I'm sure you appreciated and um, basically says there's no reason to treat animals like this at all. Um, So Mm -hmm. it does try to say some things. (laughs) I don't know, maybe it says those things better than it makes a great movie or even a fun story. I don't know. Um,
2: I got that sense as well and um, earlier uh, before you get to that kind of message where they decided to actually help Dumbo and the mother, um, the little girls uh, when you're talking about the family not working, her giving the necklace, or does she just he just throw she throws the necklace in the fire. This was not a an and, and, and that's supposed <laughs> to teach Dumbo like, hey, because I don't have a mother, I can do things, and you are missing a mother, you can. It's like making light of his suffering all the time. One
1: very weird thing about this movie is how everyone talks to Dumbo, assuming Dumbo can understand them. <laughs> this happens over and over in the. Movie the gir- the children and the girl in particular do it repeatedly. Um, I believe there's a scene where Ava Green is like trying to reason with Dumbo through dialogue, mm-hmm. and I think my favorite example of this is earlier in the movie the um, doomed elephant trainer of the original Medici Circus who is sitting there threatening Dumbo backstage, yelling at this small CGI elephant, this is why your mother didn't want you. Like, it's going to make him feel bad or something. Like, this small elephant is going to be like, well, shit, man. They like, do a lot
0: of expression through his uh, adorable eyes. With the, large, with the large ears, perhaps everyone just thought he was a very good listener. Uh... <laughs> but I, I never thought about that. Everyone is just really, really... Uh, Oh, but but can we at least say? And I, I'm not I'm not a film expert to the extent that you two are, but <laughs> I love the fact that the character who is abusive towards Dumbo, the character who would drown him because he was you know had the freakishly large ears, he gets hit by a tent pole, I believe, when, when you know the tent comes down. He gets killed. That you know? was that Now this is part. That's just part of what separates, uh, unfortunately, you know, Dumbo and uh, his mother, but. At least we got to, you know, drop a uh, 200, 300, 500, whatever it would be, pound 10, pull right on this guy and just knock but him once through again, the, you know, the ring.
1: What you're describing is about 15 minutes into this children's movie from <laughs> right. Disney for the spring. So this movie was basically what we're saying is this movie was for me. <laughs> we answered the question. The movie <laughs> was for you, Matt Mellis, specifically. Perfect. But I and I want to keep all these ideas of especially look and tone in as we get into the second half of the show and we start talking about some of the more visual aspects of these movies and how they get these points across. And actually, on that same basis, if we're going to stay on Dumbo for a few more minutes. The look of Burton doing Disney is a very interesting contradiction because he has to meet, going back to our discussion about the live action Disney movies of recent years, it feels like there are all these hallmarks that are almost studio mandated of the look of these movies that Burton's trying to hit with both movies, with Dumbo and with Alice a few years ago as well.
2: This film was a lot more warm toned than the the others that we spoke of, especially Alice and um, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, which are both so cool and so uh, (laughs) glazy. I'm making a word up for that, but um, I don't know if you guys would agree with
1: that. No, I definitely would, because as far as warm tone, that's a good way to describe, I mean, really a lot of Burton's lighter work. We talked about this in context of especially Big Fish and Big Eyes on last week's episode, where, you know, he's very good at at flooding a space with light in this way that almost makes it feel, like, divinely shone down upon. And whether we find that kind of corny or not is besides the point, because it's the exact era and feel he's trying to invoke here.
2: He does that a lot with the spotlight.
1: He does, yes. Throughout the film, there's a lot of really interesting ways of... Actually, one of the things that really intrigues me is just how willing the film is to direct your attention to Dumbo. Because when you build your movie around a CGI creature like that, a lot of the time, you know, there's trickery. They try to hide it. It's like the shark in Jaws. You only want to look at the thing head-on for so long or you start to see the seams. But I think partly because, admittedly, the Dumbo design is remarkable in this movie. It's another in a line of Disney having really convincing cgi creatures and they don't make him anthropomorphic like the weird talking animals in jungle book which is even better there's a willingness on burton's part to make you look straight at the cg that's kind of engaging here
0: Mm -hmm. and maybe that's just technology getting to a certain point but um it was always like you say it was always sort of how long can we hold off on the reveal and um of an animal and and going into this i was curious i mean because it's, it's Dumbo the movie. If Dumbo doesn't look good, if Dumbo doesn't look realistic, and there are a lot of movies where animals do not look good, they do not look realistic when they're done in CG, um, you know, that's, I mean, the suspension of disbelief. I mean, you forget about it right there. I did like looking at this elephant. I liked looking at his mother. I thought it was... Um, it was it wasn't creepy in any way. It seemed very very natural, and uh, there were no there were no scissor hands. Dumbo didn't have like scissor paws or anything. So um, it was, um, but it was just no a very warm, lovable character. And if they don't nail that, I don't know that anything else here works.
2: I agree, and then I'd add that they really capture your attention on staring at the CGI through Dumbo's movements, especially when he's tripping over his adorable ears, oh, and right. then also he has amazing. Um, eye contact mm-hmm. with um, the audience as well as the other characters with within the movie. And then I mean they, they draw attention to him, including the scene where he's carted around like a baby with a pacifier in his mouth, which is both cute and also heartbreaking. And then he's when he performs um, in the greater tent, um, he's wearing clown makeup.
1: Well, and even, and the scenes where Dumbo does take flight over an audience, there's some of the only times in this movie where we get that sense of wonder of whimsy, I would argue. It's some of the only times where Burton really feels like, and yeah, he's also doing traditional Disney in some essential ways in terms of tone and look, but it feels like he's actually, to your point from earlier in the show, Matt, he's encouraging you to actually kind of be swept up in this in a way that feels sincere and not like you're being like dragged and cajoled to it.
0: And it's, I mean, it's, it's very believable when he does it too. Um, You can believe you're actually, you know, and that, that's the whole idea of Dumbo, right? It's, it's a, seeing an elephant fly. It's what's the least obvious thing, you know, that we can have a pachyderm to And that would be take off off the ground, right? And you do get to see him soaring in several occasions and, Especially when there's sort of, you know, there's purpose to it that he's trying to earn money to get back to his mother, or he's trying to rescue the day at the end and some of the elfman score which I'm uh, I'm sure we'll talk about kind of kicks in and you know, it really did sort of um there was a sense of wonder, you know. I am, you know, I remember going to see Jurassic Park, oh my god, that's a dinosaur in front mm-hmm. of me. You know, oh my god, this is CGI, but that's an elephant flying. And uh yeah, again, like you can say what you want to about technology, whether it's made burden better or worse as a filmmaker, um, I think in the case of Dumbo and the animals here, they really nailed it. And like Natalie said, you feel for them because they nailed it so well.
2: And then there's also that sense of awe with the wide shots of him just going around and around the uh, circus tent. Uh, that's just, and you, at the same time, I'm just like, He's, he doesn't want to have to do that, the poor thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but <laughs> it is just like, oh. And then you hear the whoosh and the whoosh, and it's uh, it's very captivating. Well,
1: and what's really interesting too is especially the juxtaposed sweetness of that with like these sleek, harsh lines of the Ursets Disney World in the movie, mm. and and I think that part is really interesting too because that's where Burton really gets to mess around in the sandbox the most in terms of visualizing what you know like this. Turn near turn of the century, fantastic fair type of situation would look like. And there's some really cool stuff happening there. I mean, especially when you go up into Keaton's office and into the Colosseum. There's a lot of really great art deco design
0: happening in these sequences.
2: Greens and golds, just luxurious.
0: And I think it's all the more powerful again because it's so different from where we just came from we just came from you know a field along a train track in another town you know where the circus is moving through so we go from sort of the most um salt of the earth um country feel you know very much in a big fish you know and all of a sudden you know again we see this luxury and we see this place where you know um, people are dropping a paycheck to you know go visit and um it's 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 stunning in that juxtaposition I think. and
2: he has a lair just like batman Michael Keith is the back the in his lair. <laughs> <laughs> oh. Well
1: and I think and I think if we're talking about, you know, like the look and the way that he brings some depth to the images, that's a good way to jump back to Pee-wee too, because that's sort of the epitome of Burton being able to flood a frame with things to look at. Mm -hmm. Um, Earlier in the show, we discussed the breakfast sequence, but one of the things I find so great about watching that scene over and over and over again is the little details of every piece of the Rube Goldberg vice Mm -hmm. and the way that, in the same way we were discussing with dumbo burton is encouraging you to look straight at everything he wants you to drink in every single thing that is on screen
0: and it kind of fits with the whole this whole american idea of a cross-country you know road trip and Mm -hmm. um sort of the all the side attractions i mean we just happen to pop up at you know prehistoric park you know and uh he's being chased but we're seeing dinosaurs in the background and
1: well, and what's really lovely about that too is it's also very much built out of the aesthetic of to go back to mid century yet again as a buzzword we've been invoking a lot throughout this show and this episode. He's very interested in the places you blow by on the way to somewhere else, the right. the roadside attractions of yesteryear, and I think and the
0: people too that you would normally just yes, blow by. The different landscapes. Oh, absolutely,
1: absolutely, and in all of these cases, it kind of situates. Again, in the same way we talked about Pee-Wee's world being an extension of himself, the visual is where Burton really meets him on that basis because the swaths of color, the way that, you know, even even Large Marge, as nightmarish as she mm-hmm. is, is this totally Burtonian creature with just endless like tendrils and colors mm-hmm. and even even the monsters and the villains of the world are still in Technicolor. And
0: I do love that we can get a feel for Pee-wee's feelings on where he's at just by what Burden's doing. Whether it be, of course, you know, where would you have this meeting? In a basement with one little one little light bulb swinging <laughs> and casting shadows, right? As Pee-wee goes on about the Evans behind his bike, or... Whenever Pee Wee goes to find Madame Ruby and it's raining, because it would have to be raining, of course. he would have to have his little suit pulled up, right? Because that's going to keep him dry. And of course, who does he run into in that? Do you guys know who he runs into in that alley? It's actually Mr. Tim Burton. Burton. It's Mr. Yeah. Burton himself. And he turns and he goes, <laughs> Who doesn't and,
2: love a director cameo? Maybe, Am I right? Yeah. yeah. I, love it,
0: his I love it when M. Night Shyamalan does those.
2: Yeah, I know. It's not self indulgent. <laughs> It feels yeah. just so. It feels right.
0: Yeah, but again, I mean, it's it's so it's so over the top, but it's just you know it's so rewarding. You know, on this journey, which is like it's the adventure to top all adventures, right? You know, Pee Wee would have to do that to go see Madame Ruby. You know,
1: and just thinking in terms of the way the film visually highlights certain things, the way the film shoots Pee Wee's bike with or without him on it, it makes it look like the most... It makes it look delectable, which
0: it's is
2: a glee, weird thing to say it.
0: about
1: a
2: bike. Yeah, Fire engine red.
0: Whenever he first goes and finds it, in the, he puts in his little spy code, his password... <laughs> and then the hedge pops up and then there's the bike is already immaculately lit you know angelically lit and hi the score i'm rising here. up it's just the angels sing and
1: uh. well and there's also just in in terms of the oh. sense of play we talked about earlier it extends all the way over to every aspect including the visual you know like especially that climactic sequence that feels almost like kind of an homage to blazing saddles as much as anything especially cuz sure. both take place on the warner brothers backlot <laughs> right. But in those scenes, you know the pace of the visual. The, there's never a frame of this movie where something isn't moving, and it it, it maintains sure. this energy kind of rhythmically through the whole thing.
2: I mean, you even have a great tour guide through the Alamo with Jan Hooks. Um, there's no basement in the Alamo. Uh,
0: the the entire you say Buenas Noches, <laughs> 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 Buenos Noches, everyone together,
2: Everyone's
0: so happy, Buenas Noches. <laughs>
1: Well, and it's interesting, too, because we're going to talk about, you know, we've talked about, like, these softer, more playful versions of Burton's visual style. That's a good way to talk about the other end of the spectrum we've touched on today, which is the movies that aren't. And in that spirit, I have to jump back to Alice in Wonderland, because this is the part where we talk about how ugly looking this movie yes. is. Yes. Because it is. It is. It, 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 there's something that is almost, like, dulling to the senses about watching it after a while,
2: they're all heinous, except for the ethereal beauty of Mia Wasikowska.
0: Yeah, for sure. I mean, I'm just trying to think again. There is there is there ever is there a character? Is there is there anything pleasant to look at in any of this? I mean, it's sometimes, you know that that concern. I mean, a, per, a character looks a certain way, and you know who they are because they look that way, right? I guess you could say that about the Red Queen, right? Um, I think when you go back to Charlie. And you see these grotesque little, the way these, the color of these um, kids, these grotesque, you know, they they look like they're like overripened pieces of fruit. And, you know, like (laughs) something went wrong with them at some point. So there is something to, I think, you know, being able to make something ugly and telling us something about them that way. but. Again you need you need points <laughs> any sort of fantasy you need a pause you need a relief from the grotesque but well and also i would argue strongly
1: honestly that you know there can be beauty in hideousness there's been a lot of really well, great sure. visual art right. made on that exact topic but i don't think this movie ever finds it because i it once again it treats every creature on screen like a concept and not a character for one but it also just it rushes through every image you know you meet a caterpillar pulling on a hookah and then you go through and it's oh now here's the treasure cat and he can come and go at will And in every one of these cases, I felt like I was having a tour guide kind of pull me around from Mm -hmm. destination to destination because it never lets an image linger. The pace of the films, it's very weird because we talked about how glacial it feels and yet the movie never stops shoving you from set piece to set piece. Mm -hmm. It feels like it's rushing to be over as soon as possible.
2: But it doesn't feel like that in real life.
0: (laughs) No, it it needs to end sooner than it does. But no, to your, to your point, um, Dominic, one of the I mean, one of the great lessons you know in literature and film you can learn is that that something burden does it quite often. That's something that looks very different to you. That's something that isn't naturally or, or you know doesn't meet our natural standards of beauty can be something or someone that is quite beautiful. Whether it's like Carl the giant, you know, in a um, uh, big fish, or whether it's um, whether it's um, Edward Uh, Scissorhands, you know, exactly, you know, Um, there's something beautiful there. But the problem this is all we get are these quick visuals and there's never a chance to get to know anyone as a character and we have to understand who they are. We have to get to know them for that beauty to come out because it won't come out through the visuals. So again, it's just, it's an over-reliance on visuals too. Well, yes, and there, and one thing I think is worth mentioning
1: here is that 2010 puts this movie right smack in the middle of the 3D boom of that era, that brief multi-year period 3D, where we were, right. this was also, this was not three months removed from the release of Avatar, which when you Good look point. at that massive gross, part of it was that, you know, and, and, and we all remember after Avatar, everyone one, want, everybody wanted to watch every movie in 3d mm-hmm. people wanted to go to the theater to have that extra spectacle. The problem is most of these movies were not made to be exhibited in that way. Intended, right? And they have, and I feel like at least some of the weird disconnect you feel watching this just now on a television comes from the way that a lot of those upconverted 3d movies had to really exaggerate the gaps between person like Mm -hmm. physical person and background in order to make those storybook pop-outs happen but it also just it it has this side effect where if you're not watching it that way it just flattens and dulls the whole palette
0: i guess i can understand that too i mean this is not actually the way we're re-watching now at home isn't how it was um, intended to be seen Um, i'm just wondering if that can Could that visual could the stimulation of like say the March hare throwing a teacup and actually see it coming at you right um or Johnny Depp popping out at you with those terrible eyes could this possibly make up for all the other shortcomings visually in any other way i'm'm I'm but the to, problem is uh, a lot
1: of the creatures also for as for as lavishly as they're being rendered. There's something that feels kind of thin and less than physical about them because a lot of the physicality is just odd-looking in this movie. Mm-hmm.
2: Tweedledee and Tweedledum looked especially not well-composed.
1: Yeah, the way and, and, and they're trying to exaggerate certain things yeah. through their movement, obviously. But it Little has this—almost, yeah, it has a kind <laughs> of uncanny valley effect. Where I'm, I'm looking at how unnatural this looks, not at this being a CG creature. Mm-hmm. Crispin Glover's strange, stretched out body is the exact same
0: thing. Oh, also, and did anyone notice just uh, definitely when Glover would ride away, anyone like on horseback or anything, you know, for his naturals, like Dumbo looks flying around. Watch Crispin Glover, you know, uh, trot away on his horse and how awkward and bizarre that looks. And like nothing in history has ever moved that way no no living creatures ever live with that that sort of locomotion or whatever you want to call it or i
1: even think of johnny depp's inexplicable dance near the end of the film which the best part of that by far is all the cutaways to the other cast members who are supposed to be delivering performances of like polite bemusement and instead look deeply embarrassed to be involved
0: (laughs) Yeah, it's kind of like, oh, yeah, yeah, there, there he goes. Yeah, uh, good job, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. You, said, you said he you said Look at it, it's uh, the Mad Hatter. He's,
1: uh, he's breakdancing. The he's children, they love breakdancing. He said he was
0: going to futter whack And just let me say, this this uh, movie is just a fudderwhacking disaster of a film.
1: Well, and if we're going to talk about muted visuals, then we can stay on that same line of logic and consider Charlie and the Chocolate Factory a bit longer because I want to go back to that first reveal of The Room with the Chocolate Waterfall, because I think that's a really good case study in what's not working for the Mm -hmm. group. Because, again, it's strange enough when you have this gray and snow palette early in the film, which Mm -hmm. almost seems to be recalling his work on Edward Scissorhands, but has, once again, this weird kind of dulled filter to it. And then you get inside, and you're going, okay, now we're in business. We're in the tiny hallway. We're going to open the door now it's time for, like, the wonder of the Wonka factory.
2: And you're in incos- just accosted by these oversaturated yeah. colors.
1: Yes. There's this weird, like, black and gray industrial space that seems mm. to be enveloping everything to the point where mm. I don't see the green grass. I don't even see those red candy mushrooms. I see it looking like I'm in a convention center as soon as I look around the periphery of the shot.
0: Mm, I just again the the what struck me too is the saturation of those colors and nothing that I've ever eaten as that's been delicious has looked like anything in that room I almost liken it Do you ever go to a candy store and maybe sometimes it's you see something just so weird colored or sometimes it's like the gummy stuff. Mm -hmm. But they make weird gummy stuff, like here's a gummy hamburger. And you just look at it and you're just like, oh, God. You know, I mean, it it was like that to me. There's just nothing appetizing about anything you see. And again, what the hell's the point of having a chocolate room if, like, you know, part of you isn't salivating? You should be drooling a little bit.
2: Yeah, and what's the deal with the everlasting gobstopper that looked like a marble? (laughs) <laughs> or
0: I'm even thinking of the very
1: beginning, that animation. That's not a choking
0: hazard, is it? <laughs> I think it is.
1: Who is this for again? That opening sequence where you're walked through the pressing process of Wonka bars, right? From molding to baking to all of that, mm-hmm. that, and I know it's CGI and it's not technically within the realm of the movie yet, but even so, mm-hmm that is an entire thing showing you the inside of a confectioner's factory and the chocolate has never looked less appealing. Mm-hmm. It looks cold. It looks industrial, which is something the movie is chasing to a point, but I think follows it through the entire movie in a way that is not as deliberate.
2: An Amazon brand coffee. I mean, not not coffee, Amazon brand chocolate.
0: And here's kind of, here's the biggest problem to me. No one went into this film, um, doing animation design storyboarding whatever saying we want this to be a film full of candy that no one would ever want to eat so it's kind of like it almost comes back to like who the hell got the green light on this on this look where all these people said yes this is what our chocolate room's gonna look like this is what Wonka candy's gonna look like out in the world when there's no one who could look at that and find it appetizing in any way. It's it's weirdly apt and kind. So the one visual gag from this movie that I do
1: love is mm. um, the Wonka bar being sent into two thousand one a space odyssey as the monolith. <laughs> that I actually that I do actually find very very funny. Right, yeah. But even that scene, you know, when they have this huge chocolate bar sti- sitting there, it's like this is deeply unappetizing. And that and that was the thing. The beauty of Willy Wonka was that the menace was never like the factory, and the candy. It was the greed in the hearts of these children that led to the danger in the movie. This whole movie gives off the impression, especially visually, that this is like a house of horrors built to torture these children.
2: Right, none of the kids seem like they really deserve what they get. I mean, even even Brunka, like... I I was little, and I demanded a pony. I didn't get it, but I sure was a little, little brat about it.
0: So, but what, did you uh, get thrown down to shoot by squirrels?
2: I did not. Okay. I Instead, my pet up. squirrels were eaten by raccoons.
0: And maybe it's just, I mean, again, I go back, and I thought, um, have you ever seen, like, um, Dom, this is, this is something you've probably seen, like um, the music video for Black Hole Sun Soundgarden, where, again, it's just these... Ripening sort of characters and misshapen, misshapen people and characters, and they look. So, the kids look so terrible to me that right. I knew that. I mean, it's just like you know, when you pick out a line of kids, you're like, yeah, "That's a good kid. That's a good kid," and you know that kid's just you know a, a bad apple or whatever. Uh, I, I don't know if they were that. But I can't remember if they were that bad. That snotty. That I just. But that was also, ready for them to be. I was ready for uh, the House of Horrors to get to the. And that's the weird
1: thing. The way the way that the film. I for it. The way that Burton frames them too. He's yeah. looking at all these kids. He frames them like looking down at them as they're looking up into the camera, kind of staring at them head on, mm. and they all look like these little tyrants, which is funny up to a point but is also kind of the only representative mode the movie has for them.
2: I have a weird note about this movie. Did it seem weird to any of you when Missy Pyle hits on uh, uh, Willy Wonka?
1: (laughs) I don't don't imagine Willy Wonka as a sexual being. I did not when Wilder played him. But, (laughs) you know, it's just, again... It's it's kind of a mean-spirited movie that encourages you to not really like anybody, and the visual kind of speaks to that, because much like Alice, you know, these are movies where you're supposed to be invested in what's happening because it's being volleyed at you, not because the movie actually earned your investment. Well, and before we move on from visual discussion, I do want to take a minute to, as we always do, consider The Lasting Image, our Favorite single shot from any of these four films. So, Matt, why don't we start off with yours?
0: Um, it's not my favorite film that we've talked about, but, uh, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. I think my favorite shot is you have the Wonka factory looming on the hill. You have this sort of, it looks like a, definitely like a factory town, um, you know, industrial town, um, you could think of it, I think, definitely is like an old English industrial town. You know, we've seen images of them with all the, the the like-minded, you know, the the like-designed brick houses and, you know, sort of lined together. And it all leads down to the Bucket House. And the Bucket House is the slanted shack. A good gust of wind's going to blow it right over. Um, and Charlie is there. And he doesn't, you know, he looks out through, I think it's the roof, and he doesn't have... He doesn't have a roof for a pane of glass or anything, you know, to to um be between him and what he obsesses over. And that's, you know, this factory, um, this idea of Willy Wonka and all that um um imagination. And it's not just that. What I really think is important about that shot, and again, one of the things I said I thought this movie did really good wa- or really well, I should say, God, I'm a lip professor, really well. Um, it did clear up some of the things In terms of um, a faithfulness to the doll book Now, I'm the first one to tell you You don't have to be faithful to a book, you know, top to bottom And a lot of times, yes, the movie is better than the book But when you're in the book I mean, Charlie, um, not only is he a good boy And he's called the hero But he's a skeleton That's how he gets described He is underfed The buckets aren't just not making it The buckets are starving so here you have this, what I consider with the snow falling, it's cold. Um, this house is not, you know, although it's got the warmth of their love, it's not heated by anything else. And you have this factory that's looming above them. And it's very much this idea of they're looking at every day of this symbol of something they will never have. You know, they will never have that comfort. They may not even have tomorrow's dinner. Um, you know, this is like the cabbage soup to chocolate, you know, bars story. Um, but there may not even be cabbage soup tomorrow. So I just think that is an example of Tim Burton really getting what Raald Dahl was trying um, you know, um to get to get to um with his original that this kid from the poorest of circumstances not only could rise and have a dream come true, but Actually, a miracle could happen to him because right now this is as bleak as it could possibly get, and if that shack topples over, no one's going to even care that the buckets are gone. I just think it's it's a really great example of a burden visual that really sort of again goes back to um this idea of you know a good kid something finally happening some some sort of justice in the world where something happens to someone who really deserves it
2: um then i would just have to say large marge yeah that movie stuck with me since i was a child so and i think tim burton even said that that would she would be the one most remembered for that and she damn well was
1: oh absolutely i i feel like and especially the way that her entire story builds up to that one reveal and that even as you say the words large marge i can see her bug eyes mm-hmm. in my head right now
0: Mm -hmm. She
2: never blinks. I
0: mean, who who didn't have that? Who didn't have that nightmare about Large Marge as a kid? I mean, it's probably the... I want to say it's the most iconic visual, believe it or not. I mean, it doesn't have Pee-wee Herman in it. And that's the most iconic visual from that movie. And for me, I'm actually stay on
1: Pee-wee as well because I want to do the very last shot of the movie, which I think is, as I mentioned earlier, one of those notes in the film where something really sweet and Genuine is made out of this goofy screwball comedy. Whereas Pee-wee and Dottie ride away together, silhouetted against the goofy big studio movie mm-hmm. about Pee-wee. You know, there, there's just something so cute about it. And again, so simple about it. And it, 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 it's just, it's this vision of absolute good, of someone who has undergone the hero's journey and is now returning back to stasis in a way that makes them happy.
0: And the next morning, I've never thought about that before, but the next morning he's going to wake up and he's going to have Mr. T cereal, Rube Goldberg, you know breakfast machine's going to work we're going to have da 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 da, da 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 and he'll be right back at it yeah and in
1: and in moving over, you sang the melody, so that's a good way to jump over into our final category, which is music, score and sound. And if we're talking sound, all four of today's films have scores by Danny Elfman. So he's the composer we'll be talking about for ease of discussion. But in terms of Elfman, you know, the Pee-wee theme and particularly the breakfast theme, you know, when you think of Elfman's work with Burton and you think of Pee-wee, you hear that song. Exactly. Exactly. Because in the case of his work on Pee Wee, you know, you already hear a lot of Elfman's hallmarks when he was still, at this point, he was still a former member of Oingo Boingo, you know, like, that was what Danny Elfman was known for. Burton had asked him to come on to work on this film. And he immediately just understands the tone and establishes a bunch of his musical hallmarks. You know, that really Mm -hmm. aggressive brass, the the way that he composes instruments in such a way where you feel like you're in a toy shop listening to gizmos be wound and turned Mm -hmm. on and played with and things like that. A lot of the things we associate with the Danny Elfman sound are already kind of full-formed here.
0: Yeah, and just watching it last night, and I'm sure people have, you know, written whole articles about this sort of thing and documented it, but there were definitely a couple of points. I didn't jot down where exactly, but I definitely heard um, Beetlejuice elements.
2: Mm-hmm. I
0: um, I think I even heard like, you know, this is Halloween. This is like little bits of that were in there. I mean, obviously it's it's um, <laughs> Danny Elfman doing Danny Elfman a few years early. It's not like he stole anything, um, but uh, no, it was cool to uh, to... Realize that some of those things, just like it was cool to see Burton finding um, some of his um, tropes and some of the ideas he'd return to, you definitely they feel that Elfman is um, figuring that out here too. And hey, when it works, he's going to go back to it.
2: And like you said about the score for Pee Wee being very bouncy, I would say that that's one of his greatest scores, uh, along like next to uh, The Simpsons. Because it has a similar bounciness to it, and i I think that that 's like some of his best work because when you go into the other films it 's not really it doesn 't stand out it's it 's not memorable.
1: Well, yeah, because I was going to say of his work on these other three movies, the only one I can remember pieces of is Charlie, mostly because once again, it's Elfman working in such a menacing mode Mm -hmm. that, you know, it's perfect for the weirdo version of Charlie that Burton made, but it doesn't feel like it fits a Willy Wonka story any more than Burton's approach does.
0: I know everyone's very, very different with how they absorb music when they watch film, Um, for sure. I mean, some people really hone in on it. I tend to, I think, tune it out a bit more. Um, but, yeah, for when it comes to Elfman and Burden films, I mean, I can, you know, off the top of my head, I can talk about Pee Wee, I can talk about um, the Batman movies. Um, I have noticed, though, that if I'm watching um, a movie that I don't really care about or a movie I'm not really into, um, ask me afterwards, what do you think of the Danny Elfman score? I won't even be able to tell you. It definitely... I, I lose his score in some of the movies that I'm not invested in. And I guess I Natalie makes such a great point. When we're talking about like this road trip movie and Dom, you're you know, and the bouncing along with Dom, you're talking about like this like just smorgasborg of things to see and every you know. Elfman draws you into that. He gets you moving. He does that with Batman, he does that with Beetlejuice, and then some of the films we're talking about today, not only does he not draw me into the adventure. But I I also don't even realize he was in there in some cases.
2: Oh, same. I didn't even remember the score.
1: (laughs) Well, and it has a lot of those same brass sounds, but it's a lot of low tones. It's a lot Mm -hmm. of tuba and baritone sound. There's, once again, there is a menace, a malevolence to his work on this. And if we're talking about the sounds of Charlie, we also have to touch at least briefly on the Oompa Loompa songs, Mm -hmm. which... As we've acknowledged, we had trouble remembering, which is interesting because Elfman is working in a riot of styles here. The Oompa Loompa songs jump from Bollywood performance to hair metal. To, and he he works in all these media trying to make the songs stand apart instead of just following like the one simple melody of the original. Right. But none of those songs really stand apart.
2: They seem so long
0: as well. And the fact that, like you said, they do them in different genres um again it feels forced i mean there was just there's something so natural about uh the original the 71 original where okay you know here here comes the oompa loompa lesson um afterwards and like even if you're reading the doll the doll book i mean you were reciting them to the same sort of you know cadence every time you weren't saying okay now we're gonna do a you know guitar surface a techno version of the oompa loompa I mean, it, was, it was creative but it just doesn't work. There's nothing to, and there's nothing to latch on to. The words we can't latch on to, and just again, don't don't worry about you know pure imagination. The Anthony Newley songs and stuff from the original. Just think of the Oompa Loompa songs. Like what do you get when you guzzle down? So it's like mm-hmm. we could all sing them to this day. I can't sing anything that Danny Elfman came up to this. And that's part of it too.
2: I wonder if that has to do with the visual, with all with just the CGI of a single character. But the mm-hmm. Oompa Loompas, uh, they all also dance in unison the entire time is uh, which is not the same as the 71 picture where they at yeah. least would kind of go up and down in uh, like a different you you're, you mean, know that, what i'm talking yeah, I about mean, God bless, like, and they all yeah. looked
0: different and uh, i mean kudos to deep roy for because uh, i watched the behind the scenes how they made this and all the i mean this poor guy you know all the dancing he had to do all the things he had to get just right to make this work but it just it just doesn't work mm-hmm. again who so who said i mean and again, can go back to the original who you can pick out oompa loompas they look different um you know they weren't all just identical um they had character you're like oh i you probably had your favorite as a kid mm. oompa loompa out of all the ones that would show up or one that you can imagine right now when you think of oompa loompas in this case it was just i mean okay let's just why don't i just go watch multiplicity with michael keaton Uh, And, you know, another Burton favorite, Michael Keaton. Greg Turkington
2: would agree with you.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Popcorn classic. Mm -hmm. uh...
1: Well, and then if we're talking about the other two scores for his Disney offerings, what's wild is, and we talked about this a little last week with Big Eyes. you know, Elfman in recent years, especially in some of his more modern collaborations with Burton, has been really trying to find a version of that sound that he hasn't been doing for years by now, which I appreciate. You know, I'm sure Elfman has only so many iterations of this kind of scoring in the chamber. Mm -hmm. But the Alice score in particular didn't pop out to me because it was memorable, but actually the opposite. It felt just like the kind of glossy, overproduced score that all of the Disney live-action movies have had all swelling flourishes, string flourishes, all, you know, it it could just as easily be by Michael Giacchino or someone who's done a lot of the modern Disney scores. There's nothing especially distinctive about it.
0: Mm -hmm. And and I'm jumping around a little bit, but I know that something he's done in recent years is he's gone, he's performed like the Nightmare Before Christmas um, songs. And again, songs with, um, you know, to a musical, you know, songs with lyrics and things like that. Um, When I think of Alice growing up, um, it's been done in so many different ways. and The the property's been treated in so many different ways. But uh, one thing that was kind of a tradition was every few years they would do a musical, almost like a variety show, sort of Alice. And um, I wonder if, you know, again, that's so not what anyone would want to see today, I think. But I'm just wondering if Elfman got a chance to actually sort of go back to, like, you know, what if instead of trying to score this, you know, again, Burton piece that just had no no heart to it, nothing that you could visually cling to. What if Elfman was able to write songs and maybe draw you in or create characters? For that? I, I don't know, but I'm just trying to think of another way Danny Elfman can just, he's so talented, I feel terrible, I watch a Danny Elfman-scored movie, and afterwards someone asks me about it, I go, I, I can't mm. remember a thing about it. Is there another way for him to sort of jumpstart burden a little bit by trying a different approach
1: well and in that same vein you know Dumbo was the only one where I started asking myself this question as I was walking out of the theater and couldn't place a lot of the songs the Mm. only thing that jumped out to me really was um, Elfman's update of the pink elephants on parade march which admittedly is mm -hmm. very fun and musically completely within his wheelhouse at that And then there's also the two versions of Baby Mine, one briefly in ukulele form about halfway through the movie. The other over the end credits, courtesy of Arcade Fire, because the children in Dumbo's target audience, they love Arcade Fire. (laughs) But no, again, this is another movie where I do think like the darker tones that come out later mm-hmm. in the film during a lot of the dreamland sequences, those obviously are like more of a comfort zone for Elfman for sure. and for Burton because that's when the movie seems to come alive a little is when the two of them are working in a more familiar mode.
0: And I and I did mention, and I thought there was a beautiful piece of, um, music that when Dumbo was flying to the rescue at the end, um, that elfman sort of score soared behind him, it was soaring, Dumbo was soaring, and it was a moment where the things came together and again i can't I can't point to a lot of other memorable moments, unfortunately uh, from the film that were like that.
2: I don't have any real any score pieces that stood out to me in Dumbo. I was too too upset by mm. the animal imagery
1: <laughs> well. On the note of fraught animal imagery, that might actually be where we carry week three of filmography Tim Burton to its close on animal cruelty. <laughs> that wasn't a good segue, but we're going to commit right. to this. So, as always, thank you to both of you for joining me this week. Thank you to Cat Blackard and Michael Rothman for all of the continued support at Consequence Podcast Network. Stay tuned to our Facebook page, Facebook slash Filmography Podcast, for all of our announcements and updates about future month's installments and the rest of our Tim Burton session. As a reminder, you can leave us a review on Spotify, on Apple Podcasts, on Podchaser, or wherever else you find your podcasts. Next week, be sure to join us for part four of Filmography Tim Burton, which will follow Pop Burton, as seen through both Batman movies, Mars Attacks, and 2001's Planet of the Apes. Um, You can find me at Consequences Sound and occasionally on Twitter at D. Suzanne Mayer as well. Where can the good people find you two?
2: Around.
0: Um, You can find me at uh, Consequences Sound all the time um several columns and things i write there Um, and you can also find me on twitter at mr matt mellis so that's m-r-m-a-t-t-m-e-l-i-s and also around
1: as a reminder filmography is not the only consequence podcast network production you can enjoy you can also check out this must be the gig leor phillips weekly music interviews podcast Kyle Meredith with The Losers Club, a Stephen King podcast, and Halloweenies, which is currently in the midst of its Nightmare on Elm Street season. Filmography is a production of the Consequence Podcast Network. Check out our expanding roster of film, television, and music podcasts at ConsequenceOfSound.net. This show is recorded, produced, and engineered in Chicago, Illinois by me, Dominic Suzanne Mayer. Thank you for listening, and we will see you all next week. Consequence Podcast Network.
2: Hey, it's Jen and Jess from Fat Mascara, and this is a StayCast from Acast. We're based out of New York, New York, and are currently practicing social distancing and staying at home. Please check your local government's website and follow their advice. After you follow their advice, you'll probably be staying at home, and when you do, practice your social distancing and listen to another great podcast from Acast like... Like, watch what crap in It's hilarious, and if you love reality TV, it's perfect, and there's plenty of time to binge on that right now. <laughs>